What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, uh, guess what? We're a couple of weeks into the Biden administration and we're impeaching President Trump again. That's right. Uh We've got the trial of Donald Trump beginning this week in the United States Senate. And we are in such unprecedented constitutional, legal, and political ground. The first time a president of the United States has been tried after leaving office. And there's a huge debate within conservative legal circles, real disagreement about whether or not it's constitutional to uh, impeach a former president once he has left office. The Senate voted uh, with 45 Republicans voted that it is not, which signals that this is whether it's, I'm sure some of them genuinely believe it. Others, it's a great safe harbor not to vote to convict Donald Trump because they can basically say, I'm not condoning what he did. I'm not even taking into account what he did because this is just an unconstitutional procedure and it absolves them of the need to weigh in on the horrible things that happened in the US Capitol on January 6th. I think others truly believe it, uh, that it's unconstitutional. There are really very interesting and weighty legal arguments on both sides. But regardless of that, the, the trial's happening. What do you think, Danny? Well, I think this is all going to come down to a case of political theater. You know, we spent a a great podcast with Andy McCarthy talking about why he thought that actually convicting of impeachment after leaving office was legal. We're going to talk a little more about others who think that it's not constitutional. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think any of that is going to be relevant. I think what is animating everything, as indeed it did throughout the entire Trump presidency, is politics. And in this case, what's really going to give energy to a lot of this is Donald Trump's desire to stay at the center of the Republican Party and to prove his hold over the senators that are sitting Republicans in the U.S. Senate right now. I mean, I'm curious to know, what you think. Do you think that Kevin McCarthy, for example, did the right thing by first condemning the president and then going down to Florida and making nice with him? Oh my gosh, no. Uh, I mean, look, he was half right the first time when he went to the floor of the House right after the insurrection that took place and said that the president was spared responsibility for what happened. But he still voted to challenge the Electoral College results. And so did, uh, I can't remember what, I think it was 136 members of Republican members of the House did after that happened. And then after taking that courageous stand, he's been backing off it ever since. And he backed himself all the way to Mar-a-Lago for a photo op with the president. It is remarkable as well, because the Republicans are playing exactly the game that Nancy Pelosi wants them to play. And that is that they are wrapping themselves up with Donald Trump rather than separating themselves from him. And I ask myself, what the hell is wrong with them? Why is that, that that the Republican Party feels so bereft of ideas that it has to sort of huddle under the Donald Trump tent? I have no idea. Do you? 
Well, because he's still very popular with the Republican base and with the and a lot of these people, as we know, especially in the House, where thanks to gerrymandering, the districts are very, very divided. Most districts are not competitive, right? They're they're very divided among very rabid Republicans and very rabid liberals. And that's why every every most incumbents get reelected. And so their constituents are very pro-Trump. And keep in mind their constituents for six weeks were fed the big lie, which is that the election was stolen. The president of the United States said the election was stolen. Why would that? And the media uh, that has no credibility with them said it's not true. And, you know, I mean, one of the things Liz Cheney did is she circulated a memo to the House because there's this myth out there that like none of the none of the court cases ever, they were just took it, didn't accept it on, on grounds of, of standing. They never actually addressed the substantive issues. And she circulated a long memo to her House colleagues before the incident on Capitol Hill, on, I think on January 3rd, saying, actually, the courts did address the substance of it. And not a single court found that any of these cases had any merit. You know, so the Republicans have been fed the big lie. And you know, they may not like what happened on January 6th, but these Republican members want to just walk past it. We can't walk past it. We can't ignore the fact that a Confederate flag was being waved in the rotunda of the Capitol, something the Confederacy never accomplished. We can't walk past the fact that there was a mob with weapons and zip ties running around looking for lawmakers to arrest them and do God knows what to them. We can't look away from the fact that they could have come within moments of seizing the electoral votes, that a mob was trying to stop Congress illegally, forcefully, from carrying out its constitutional responsibilities to count and certify the electoral votes. This is one of the worst things that's happened in Washington in our lifetimes. And we just can't avert our eyes. I'm sorry. So this is very interesting, though. So let, let's separate out these two questions, because, you know, I agree with everything you've said up to now. I'm not giving you a carte blanche for the future, however. But <laughs> but. You know how we have our recording at the beginning of everyone saying, what the oh, hell what is the going hell? on? What the hell is going on? I'm going to pull together a recording. I'm going to help Alexa help me. I'm going to pull together a recording of all the time saying, well, I agree with you, Mark. I agree with 100% of everything you said. I agree with you. You agree with me a lot, Dan. Um, <laughs> don't you share my dirty secrets with our listeners. Anyway, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to make this intellectual point, which is that the other disservice that Donald Trump has done to us is that he has actually put us in uncharted territory that forces us to either bend the law, bend the constitution, or allow what happened to pass without any repercussions for the leader of this attempted insurrection at the Capitol. That's the legacy of this that is even worse. All of these things have happened. All of these things are terrible. And we can detail each element of it. But at the end of the day, we've got to figure out what to do. The Congress's answer is impeachment. And I don't blame Congress for looking to that answer because that is the correct congressional response to a president who seeks not to carry out his duties under the Constitution. But then we get to this sort of invidious question of whether the Constitution you know, allows the president to be tried once he has left office. And that's the discussion that we are looking at today. And I, we have a terrific guest, a recidivist guest with us. But before I introduce him, I, I'm just going to tell everybody up front, you know, 
we talk about this. I think that there are persuasive cases to be made on both sides. But at the end of the day, this is not a very satisfying outcome. And that is for the United States and for our process of governance, a, a very unpleasant fact. Yeah, so there's two things. There's, there's the legal and constitutional question of whether you can proceed and whether it's constitutional to proceed with the trial, which, of which there's disagreement. And then there's the practical case of whether it's prudent to go ahead with a trial once the president has left office and all, all the rest of it. And they are both incredibly tough questions. And we're about to talk about the legal, so I won't go too deeply into onto the constitutional side, but even on the practical side. So I believe that Donald Trump committed an impeachable offense. I've said it on our podcast here. I've said it in my Washington Post column. We agree on that. I'm not sure that it's prudent to go ahead with the trial. And there are reasons for that. One, I, I, you can see from that vote that I referenced at the beginning, he's going to get acquitted. And we all remember the picture after the Ukraine impeachment, which I thought was wrong, and I supported him during that, of him holding up the newspaper by the Washington Post headline, Trump acquitted. He's going to take that as a victory, and it's actually going to strengthen him politically. But the counterargument that the Liz Cheney's of the world make is that what we were just discussing, which is that it's shocking how quickly conservatives want to go past what happened on January 6th, that we want to avert our eyes from this. And a trial would force the country to confront what happened. We will watch the video of that Metropolitan Police officer being dragged down the stairs and beaten like a scene out of Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu. We will see these people desecrating the inner sanctum of our democracy, rifling through the desks in the Senate, looking for the Electoral College votes, zip ties in hand, looking for members of Congress, people marching and saying, hang Mike Pence. And we will also see in a trial simultaneously what Donald Trump was doing while all this was happening. Because when Mike Pence was in hiding for his life, Donald Trump was tweeting that Mike Pence doesn't have the courage to do what's right. He was pouring gasoline on the fire. People were calling him, Kevin McCarthy, other members of the House were trying to reach the White House, trying to reach the president. He wouldn't take their calls. He wouldn't call up the crowd and he poured gasoline on the fire. And it was not until over three hours into the incident that he finally issued that video where he said, go home peacefully. So it's not just that he incited it, that he was actually inflaming it while it's happening and refusing to pull back the people who were doing this in his name. So there's an argument to be made that the country needs to confront that reality and that we should have a moment as a nation where we go through that and see all of that. So, you know, it's a very tough call. I'm not 100% sure where I stand on it. I think there have been good arguments made on both sides. I'm also not 100% sure where I stand on the constitutional issues, which we're about to talk about with, a, with an incredible guest. So John Yu is our guest. Uh, he is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Director of the Korea Law Center and the California Constitution Center uh, at Bolt Hall, the Law School of the uh, University of California at Berkeley. He's written extensively. I'm not gonna list all of John's books, but most important, his most important credential other than being a great guest on what the hell is going on with us on repeated occasions is that he's also a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. So it's wonderful to have And a good back. friend. Here's John Yu. Well, John, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back with you guys from AEI West out here in anti-vaxxer central California, <laughs> San Francisco. Well, we'll have to talk about that on a future podcast, but we're here to talk about uh, impeachment and particularly the impeachment of a former president. So this is an issue 
that there are people who we all like and agree with on the right who vigorously disagree over whether it is constitutional to impeach a president after he's left office. Could you just lay out the arguments for and against? Just what are, what are the two sides arguing on each side? Yeah, first, Morgan, Dan, it's great to be back with you. And this is um, a close question. In law, we use this unfortunate word equipoise or dubitante, where it's so finely balanced, almost anything can cause you to go one way or the other. And so mm-hmm. let me give you first the case of the people who think you can't try a former president. And that's a view held by, I think, uh, Judge Mike Ludig, uh, Ken Starr, Alan Dershowitz, Richard Epstein have all been out making this argument. And their claim is simply based on Article Two of the Constitution, where it just says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment. It doesn't say former president, former vice president, or former civil officer, it just says the president. So that, according to a lot of people, implies that you can only try someone who's in office. Now, the people on the other side, uh, many of whom um, are editors of National Review are the ones I've been arguing with the most about this, <laughs> right? They would say, look at the constitutional text in Article uh, One, where it talks about, right, the House impeaches. Uh, and no one doubts that the House could impeach because President Trump was still in office while the House impeached. Then the Constitution in Article One, which is where Congress's powers are set out, says the Senate shall have the power to try all impeachments. That's it. That means if the impeachment was good at the time the House did it, then the Senate has the power to just try them. Doesn't matter if they're still in office or not. So I think that's pretty close. So I think in these cases, the thing where conservatives are different than liberals is that you know, we don't ask, well, what would be a good idea? And you know, we go back and try to look at what the founders thought. And so this is where I sort of fall on the, I don't often do this. So this is where I fall on the Dershowitz side, the libertarian side or the Richard Epstein side, um, which is uh, that I don't think the founders wanted to incorporate the, the type of impeachment that the British had. So if, if you went back to ye olde England, the British would allow impeachment of private people, not just officials. They also allowed impeachment where if you know, the House of Commons indicted, the House of Lords tried you and convicted you, they could impose criminal penalties up to and including the death penalty. Actually, that would really focus Trump's mind, right? As you think be subject say, to the death penalty. That sounds like something I can sign up for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. could you imagine showing up in the House of Lords and Danny Pleka is sitting as the trial judge? I, I would just concede right there and give up. I would plea bargain right away. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Hang them early and often. <laughs> then the second piece of history, and then I'll stop, is that if you go back and look at the state constitutions of the revolutionary period between 1776 and 1787, um, some of them say you can impeach officers after they have left office. And then other state constitutions don't. So my read of that, and again, this is so close, but my read of that is, well, if the founders knew how to say, and you can try formal officers too, and they said them in some state constitutions, but they didn't in the federal constitution, then we should assume they left it out on purpose. John, there are a whole series of sort of contextual questions to ask and, and questions about the intent of the founders. But at the end of the day, I think for a lot of us, this is going to end up coming down to a, a, a political read. And one of the most interesting things you said to me that sort of bridges that gap a little bit is this notion that if in fact 
the Senate can convict after the president leaves office, it basically leaves former presidents and all former officials beholden to the Congress for their entire lives. And you argue that that causes a separation of powers problem. Uh, go into that because I think that's actually a practical and a juridical issue that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, you say it's a political issue, but I actually think it's a constitutional issue uh, as well, Danny, in that if you look at the constitution, it is uh, remarkable in creating a presidency. Right? None of this, you know, most of the state constitutions of the time uh, had very weak executives because of the reaction to King George III and so on. And what people forget, or maybe never even knew, particularly out here in San Francisco, where we have stripped Abraham Lincoln off the Thomas Jefferson and George Washington off our uh, elementary schools, is uh, that the Constitution actually creates a very strong presidency. Uh, there's a desire to make it independent. As you point out, Danny, if you gave the Congress the ability to impeach not just current officers, but all past officers of the government, right? That's going to increase Congress's hold over the executive. And one thing we know, despite all these um, arguments we can have about how ambiguous the constitutional text is, uh, one thing it's clear the founders wanted to do was to make the president independent from Congress. You know, that's why they rejected the idea that Congress should pick the president which was proposed actually and made it fairly far along in the constitutional drafting convention. And that's why they knew that to make it too easy to punish presidents and officers uh, would give Congress too much power over the executive branch. So that's why they put in a two thirds requirement to remove presidents. That's why they made the chief justice, the trial judge for presidents. And I think in the end, as you say, Danny, that's why I think they would have resisted the idea that they can forever have essentially power over every official who's ever served in the executive branch. Because to them, maybe it's not true today, but to them, reputation was everything. And so even if you'd left office many, many years ago, they would have hated the idea that Congress could go besmirch your reputation by impeaching you and saying you had dishonored the country in some way. So I want to ask you a two-part question. I want to ask you the first question first and then follow up. Um, do you think that questions of impeachment are subject to judicial review. Because there have been, I think there's two principal cases where, where an impeachment has been brought to the courts. And in both cases, uh, the court, they were both judges uh, who challenged their impeachments. And the courts included that impeachments were non-justicable political questions. Do you, believe, do you agree with that? Because we don't have any Supreme Court precedent on this. So uh, Mark, if you were in law school, I would give you an A for your answer, but I would fail you on your pronunciation of legal words. <laughs> <laughs> so you would never make it as a lawyer. <laughs> so what do you, do you mean non-justiciable? <laughs> non-justiciable. There non you go. All right. Non-justiciable. <laughs> so no, exactly. No, no. But I have to give you an A on the substance because that's exactly mm -hmm. right on uh, what the Supreme Court held. It's a case called uh, Nixon versus United States in 1993. This is not Richard Nixon, but I have a rule that has never been broken, which is any time a Nixon makes it to the Supreme Court, they always lose, generally <laughs> unanimously. And this Judge Nixon did lose unanimously. So this is interesting because some of this was floated for Trump. He was impeached and uh, convicted. He was tried by a committee of the Senate. You know, all three of us have worked in the Senate, right? We know yes. that they don't want to sit there and run a trial for weeks. What they did, of course, is they created a special committee to try Judge Nixon. So he said, based on that text, you know, the Senate tries all impeachment. So he said, it has to be the whole Senate. 
some committee doing it is unconstitutional. So he actually went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said the way the Senate tries the case is non-justiciable because constitution says the Senate shall try. That means only the Senate gets to decide how to run the trial and the Supreme Court, the federal courts are ousted. They're not allowed to interfere. And then it's interesting, the founders actually considered initially having the Supreme Court try impeachments and they changed it because it created an obvious conflict of interest. Now, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, there are many commentators out there who I think are reading uh, this Nixon case too broadly because the court says how the Senate tries the case is non-justicable. <laughs> but uh, what it doesn't say is that their doors are closed to challenging whether it's appropriate to impeach someone at all. Not how you try it, but whether you can try. So let me give you this example. I think everyone agrees uh, on this question that the Congress can't impeach private citizens who've never been in government, which is actually something the British used to do. So suppose Congress said, we're not just going to impeach Trump or Nixon. We're going to impeach people who are friends of John you. Yeah, they've never <laughs> been in office, right? Or Tyson or Pleka, right? You know, so they say, we're going to impeach everyone who's connected with the What the Hell podcast. It seems to me that Nixon does not foreclose you or Danny from going to the Supreme Court and saying, I'm not even subject to impeachment. So it's not about how the Senate tries us at all. This is whether they have any power over us at all. And yet, I think that's something Trump might actually consider and, and try um, if he had any lawyers that could represent him. <laughs> but yeah, right now the merry-go-round just threw off the last team and now a new team's jumped on. So then the follow-up question to that is, so you're, you're basically saying that it hasn't been up until now, there hasn't been precedent for the Supreme Court questioning uh, an impeachment, how it was carried out, but that's possible, right? It's never um, happened. But, but, but one would think that the precedent of Senate's actions would then sort of govern it unless the Supreme Court ruled otherwise. So the, the yes. two cases that suggest this, there is this power, is the, first the case of Senator William Blount uh, in 1797, who was impeached after he was expelled by the Senate, impeached by the House. And then he by challenged the way, he it. deserved it because I think he shot and killed somebody. But he challenged it on the grounds that one, the Senate didn't have, that he was no longer in office, but also that he wasn't a civil officer under the okay. meaning of the Constitution. And so the Senate agreed, they took up the case, but then they had voted separately and said, he's not a civil officer, so therefore, but they quit. never ruled on that. But they did take up the case. And then the other one was the case of Secretary of War, William Belknap, who the Senate voted 37 to 29, I'm looking here, that the respondent is amenable to trial by impeachment for acts as done as Secretary of War, notwithstanding his resignation of said office before he was impeached. And the House actually impeached him after he had resigned. Um, yeah. So unlike the Trump case. So do you think that was an unconstitutional impeachment? And does that precedent sort of stand unless it's challenged? And the Supreme Court rules otherwise. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, as, you know, we're all three Senate alums, so we know the Senate works by tradition and precedent. And these questions have never been faced by the courts. So because, as you notice, Mark, both times the Senate acquitted Blount and Belknap. So the only way to get to the court is if they had been convicted, like Judge Nixon had been. So and Trump's probably going to get acquitted, so he won't yeah. be able to take it to the court. Yeah, I mean, he unless they try this 14th Amendment thingy, which we could talk about later. But so the only way to really challenge this in court, you're right, the Senate precedents will govern until there's a chance to challenge the court. And I think it's interesting, Trump could try to file a writ of habeas corpus and just preclude the whole proceedings, but I doubt he's going to try that because it sounds like he actually wants to have a forum, right, to 
relitigate the election on the floor of the Senate. I mean, the Senate's offering him uh, unlimited TV time here. Or uh, what would normally happen is he would have to be convicted and disqualified from office. And then he uh, would have to win office <laughs> in an election and then say in court, my disqualification is no good. That's the, that would be the only way he could get into court, I think. Oh, by the way, I should have mentioned people who um, argue in favor of holding the trial also say, since the punishment is removal from office and disqualification, the disqualification still means that you could try former officers. Although people on the other side say, but it says and, not or. And so the, if the punishment is removal and disqualification, that suggests you have to be in office when you are tried. So I don't think the disqualification idea solves the question one way or the other. So John, I mean, that was the argument. We had Andy McCarthy on uh, from National Review and Andy made the argument, uh, the disqualification argument, exactly that, that basically, you know, that the founder's intent in adding that in you know, was to ensure that in fact, people could be removed from the political process, if you will. But uh, here's the question for me, and this is really, this is sort of the, the gray zone that we're all talking about. And that's why I talk a little bit about the politics. So you argue, and a lot of people have argued that there remains a remedy in the case of Donald Trump, in the sense that if, in fact, the Congress believes that he committed a criminal act, that, in fact, he can be tried by the courts. I think most reasonable people, understanding that all of us believe, I think you included, that he committed an impeachable act mm -hmm. in inciting his followers to invade the Congress and try to overturn the counting of the electoral votes. But, in fact, most legal analysts believe that he probably didn't actually break the law, that his language was ambiguous enough that he in fact didn't exhort them to do exactly as they ultimately ended up doing, that he used the words peaceful, yada, 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 yada. And therefore, because it doesn't rise to that standard, it really isn't a matter for the courts. I mean, it seems to me that we have a real problem here, which is that we have somebody who is manifestly unqualified and who has besmirched the office and abused our democratic processes, something that theoretically another branch of government would address, but that in fact the law is not equipped to address. And I wanna preempt your answer by saying, right, and you say, okay, well, the voters can address that, right? By simply never reelecting him. But of course we recognize that we're in a very different environment in which the information that voters have isn't exactly uh, pristine. What do you do in this case? So this is a question that the living constitutionalists, not that I'm accusing you, Danny, of being one, because it's, it's dirty, dirty words, fighting words. Well, I, well, fighting I, I, words. I am living. I am living, but that's about it. <laughs> this is the living constitutionalist way to think of it, which is today with modern political science, we know, and we look at other countries and we see there's lots of bad things executives do. And so there should be a range of different things, right? Like in a parliamentary system, you could have a no confidence vote, right? And just remove the prime minister when they don't have the political support of the majority of the Congress. So you have a range of things, the sanctions that you can impose. Like you say, basically what you're saying, Danny, is there's gotta be something in between impeachment and criminal prosecution to handle you know, presidents who have disgraced their office, have harmed the country, but you can't prove it in a court with a jury as a criminal violation. Can't or it's a political something. crime, yeah, as opposed to what Hamilton yeah. called a political crime versus a criminal offense. Yeah, right? so, so you'd say, like, can't we do something about that with the constitutional text being so vague? 
Whereas uh, I think of originalists, like we would say, well, you know, the founders, they didn't think of all this stuff, right? They only thought of impeachment or criminal prosecution. And maybe they didn't even think, and I think this is the case, they never thought of someone like Trump ever becoming president. <laughs> you know, fame and reputation didn't matter, right? Who, you know, the desire for public service was not as strong as it should have been. It's very interesting. I mean, there's a great story, if I could tell one, where Hamilton, Madison, and this is not like rabbi, priest, go into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> go into a bar. <laughs> it sounds like one. Hamilton, and also, Madison, and Jay go into a bar. <laughs> and it's also, this is a true, this is a true story. Hamilton, uh, Madison, and Jefferson um, are having dinner in Philadelphia. So they had a dinner where they resolved where the capital was going to be located. Then after dinner, this is a kind of after dinner talk. I think Jefferson's such a bore. So anyway, so Jefferson says, if you could be anybody in history, you know, who would you be? Who do you admire the most in history? So I believe Jefferson says Isaac Newton, great discoverer of physics. Hamilton says Julius Caesar, <laughs> which is <laughs> so the reason we know this, we believe this to be true. So of course, Jefferson, being Nixonian and his paranoia, immediately ran to a study after Hamilton left there and wrote this down in a memo. Jefferson invented the memo to the file. He wrote essentially, memo to the file, <laughs> Hamilton wants to be Caesar. But why did Hamilton say this? Because Hamilton said, because what causes people to go into government at all? Why do we, any of us, you, me, you guys, me, we've all been punks, why do we do it? And he said, the desire for fame of reputation is the leading motive for the greatest soul. You do it because you want your fellows to think well of you. They never thought someone like Trump, who doesn't care about historical reputation. And so if you have, would become president, so you have someone in office who's very self-seeking, a lot of the restraints that Danny's talking about fail. Trump could say, so what if I remove from office and I'm disqualified? I don't care, <laughs> right? Like he... Disqualification from office to the founders was the most humiliating thing you could do to someone, right? Because you're saying you are unfit to be a member of the government. In fact, they thought just impeaching someone and never try and convicting them itself was so humiliating, that would be a big incentive. If only. Yeah, that's as you say, Danny, but if you don't care about that on your reputation, then the impeachment becomes a, a very weak guy. So I, 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 my view is just that I think you're right, Danny, there's this gap in the Constitution about what to do with someone who doesn't care about being impeached as in terms of their historical reputation, but hasn't done something as bad as a criminal violation. Because I agree with you, I agree with Andy. I think the House charged the wrong crime. As Mark says, they could have charged a po more political offense, like trying to stop the Electoral College from meeting and counting the votes. But instead they charged him with incitement, which he did. I agree. he just didn't commit. It. I mean, he did a lot of bad things, but he did not commit incitement. And so he's in this. Well, gap. he could have committed in the political sense. Yeah, but not they, in they the charge sense. him with that. Yeah. I mean, they charged him with incitement to insurrection. I mean, I don't think these guys really were an insurrection. I think they were a mob, and I don't think that he committed incitement. I, I mean, you know, insurrection is the Confederacy, not you know the Proud Boys running around in camouflage. It seems to me. Well, let's get into and that from that a criminal law idea. perspective. From a criminal yeah. law perspective. But you you mentioned that uh, the founders thought that disqualification was that's the worst thing. Uh, that could happen to you. Let's talk about some of the practical objections to not allowing to impeach a former president, which is that if resignation or termination of office prevents impeachment, then it basically nullifies the disqualification clause because you can just avoid lifetime disqualification by simply resigning your office and then you can no longer be tried. And what it does is it incentivizes wrongdoing on the part of officials who can just you know hide the wrongdoing until right before they're out of office or resign 
and preempt uh, themselves from being tried in the Senate by stepping down from office. You know, and we have a case now when most people, like when we lived in the age of shame, to take Danny's practical question, where shame actually mattered, I do not put it past the possibility that Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee in, in 2024. His support among in the GOP is large, and I don't put it past him that he could recover from this and win the presidency back. So shouldn't... You're like, Nixon you know, should have run in 80. <laughs> we used to have the, remember the old stickers like taste tan rested and ready nixon 84 or nixon 92 nixon 96 <laughs> you're, you're right i mean the, the, but i think you're falling into this trap of can't we do something with the constitutional text and stretch it a little bit because we have a failure you the impeachment is not a good system it's so you're uh, revoking my federalist card yeah, yeah no no it's just impeachment, <laughs> is a, impeachment is this weird 18th century bizarre tool that the british only had the british stopped impeaching people i think around 1815 i mean they don't do it they stopped doing it almost right away because it doesn't make sense it's a it's a poor tool but for some reason our found actually it was alexander hamilton's idea to put it in the constitution apparently but i think you're making the same claim as uh, danny was because impeachment is so imprecise a tool that doesn't get most of the cases we want to use for example someone who resigns early or someone who gets away with something at the end of their term shouldn't we extend well i'm asking why did the founders put the disqualification clause in there if they if they meant it to be nullified you know the the, the existence of a of a disqualification clause goes to the argument that maybe you can impeach somebody after because the remedy is not simply removal from office, it's disqualification from future office. And so that they, why would they create a mechanism that they then nullified by the way they wrote it? So I went and looked. So if you were right, you would expect to see them talk about removal. And everyone agrees removal is the most important part, right? To get people out of office who are harming the country as quickly as possible. So you would expect to see in the founding debates, uh, removal and disqualification talked about separately. But they always say removal and disqualification together, you know, as a tool, uh, rather than uh, some people want to do removal, some people want to do disqualification, let's amend it and include them both. You don't really see that. Um, so to me, it means that they thought uh, there were some people who were so dangerous, you want them out of office right away, and then never allow them into office again. And that would be kind of like a joint, like in criminal law, you know, you sentence somebody for burglary or something, you could say you can get a term of years and a fine, right? And the judge has a discretion to give you the fine, give you the term of years, both one or the other. I think that's what the founders had in mind when they used that phrase. But what seems hard to me is to have everything turn on that phrase disqualification to open up having every former official ever be subject to impeachment. I just don't so think it bears that much weight. I feel quite persuaded. We're not going to resolve this this question on this podcast, but it is kind of interesting because you know all of this is focusing around the person of Donald Trump, and yeah. even when you have unbelievable agreement about Donald Trump, you still have political disagreement about how to move forward. That's how polarizing a figure he is. But it is interesting if you separate Trump out from this that in fact, there have been judges in particular who have been removed, but not disqualified. So my favorite example, of course, is Alcee Hastings, uh, or, <laughs> right. as he, or as, as he prefers to be known, Congressman Alcee Hastings, <laughs> who was impeached as a judge 
but mm-hmm. was not disqualified from seeking future office. And in fact, is now a member of the House of Representatives, supping at the taxpayer's trough, unbelievably. I think he's in the House, a member of the Judiciary Committee, so he gets to vote on other people's impeachments. From <laughs> office. So there's nothing so great a conflict since Aaron Burr was the trial judge for the impeachment of a Supreme Court justice right after he shot Alexander Hamilton. Basically, what we are saying is there must be some way in our system that Donald Trump can't get away with this. And of course, the answer is, well, you know, the system dictates that. Okay, so how should we fix this? Understanding that Donald Trump is probably not the last character like that to run for office. How can the United States systemically better arm itself in the future to preclude the possibility that we have yet another scoff law in in the White House. Now, let me just pause before I answer that and say that it was still possible to trot Donald Trump uh, while he was president, right? The House, you know, sat on the impeachment, right? They didn't hand over the impeachment until after Trump had left. They had several weeks, right? They had 14 days to do the impeachment and the trial. And instead they held the impeachment. It's almost like they wanted to do it deliberately once he left office. So no, that's uh, right. They still had time. Really, the case is really of someone who almost commits the violations right before, like right before January 20th. And as we know, because we're talking about this case of Nixon with Mark, the Senate could have had a one day trial if they had wanted to. And the Supreme Court would not have interfered. So almost the politics of it got the better of the people who could have punished Trump. Um, so what do we do? So. Yeah, my initial instinct is that the voters can achieve the same result as impeachment, right? They can, they removed him from office at the November elections, and then they can disqualify him from office by never electing him again. I, I take Mark's point that he's supporting the Republican Party is still quite powerful. Uh, I mean, I think, and this is, I think this is actually where the, what the founders thought it may not work in today's social media, today's shameless world. They thought that someone who, like Trump, who had been impeached, someone certainly impeached twice, he would be so ashamed he would never run for office or he would be so um, held in disregard that the people would never, not only never vote for him for office, just never have anything to do with him. So just to give you an example, Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr murdered Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He is seen as such a bad figure. He can never run for office again. What does he do? He leaves the United States and tries to start a revolt in Louisiana and is later tried for treason. That's an example. He was the vice president and he couldn't be impeached, but he was so humiliated, he left the country. And, you know, that's sort of how the founder's system of reputation and shame worked. And maybe you're right, Danny. It's just like in a world where politicians have no shame, the founder system breaks down. And so we have to rely on politics and economics. So to put a more practical point on it, then Trump's not done with the legal system or the legal system's not done with Trump, right? There's still have the possibility, as you said, of prosecution. So there could still be further investigation into the January 6th events and also Trump's efforts to stop the electoral count to see if he committed any violations. The investigations into him by the uh, Manhattan DA are still gonna go on. The investigation of his taxes by Congress is still gonna go on. And he's going to be beset by legal problems for decades, probably by till the day he dies. Maybe that's the best we can do. Final question, exit question for me, because just because Danny hinted at it, but I mean, you believe that the president committed an impeachable offense, and I think all three of us do. Liz Cheney uh, says that she not only was an impeachable offense, but it's probably the worst thing a American president has ever done. 
in the sense that he basically that's a pretty bad president so i'm trying to think yeah yeah i mean she's andrew Andrew johnson escape (laughs) or or actually james madison for basically almost losing the war of 1812 i mean mean, basically what she's saying is that it was an effort to prevent congress by force from carrying out its constitutional responsibility of counting the and certifying the electoral college votes and that we need to keep in mind that it's only by the grace of God that this wasn't much worse. There were people running around chanting, hang Mike Pence. What if they had gotten to Pence before the Capitol Police were able to get to him? What if they had gotten to the boxes containing the electoral votes? This could have been much, much worse. But tell us why you think what he did was impeachable and what, and you say that the House chose the wrong charge. What would the right charge be? So the president's two constitutional duties are to enforce the law and to protect the nation from attack. And so he was derelict in both. And dereliction is not a criminal charge, right? That's just, that's actually more like a military court martial charge. He's derelict in duty. So the first thing is he refused to enforce the electoral laws themselves, right? He tried to stop the electoral college and the electoral votes rather than enforce the constitutional laws that created them. You know, you could see a case maybe like 1876, actually, where some states send in two sets of electoral votes, where then you do have to choose between the two. But when you had all the states returning certified counts, no challenges succeeding any of those states, there's, it seemed to me there was factually no reason to doubt the Electoral College vote. The president had no right to try to stop it. In fact, his legal duty was to accept it and, ele- and enforce it. And then I think the second dereliction of duty was, you know, this duty to protect the nation from attack, protect the capital from attack. Instead of egging on a mob, he should have called out the police faster and called out the National Guard faster. Both of you have said, you know, impeachment covers not just crime, but politics. And, you know, he failed to uphold the Constitution. And I think he committed a political crime against the nation. So I agree. I agree. It's just that the House did something strange. It charged them with the wrong crime. It acted too fast at first, then too slow at the end. Didn't hand it over to the Senate for trial. The, the defects in the way they did it, are, I think, are going to doom it. Well, they're either going to do it or it was never going to happen in the first place, and which is one of the things that the Senate vote uh, on the Rand Paul bill seemed very, very clear. All in all, it reminds us how unbelievably depressing this episode has been. Oh, my God. You know, sometimes there isn't always a magical fix for it. And I suspect a lot of us wish there had been a clean fix for it. But either way, how horrible and depressing. Thank you for thank you for <laughs> thank you for going through the issues with us as usual. So succinct and easy to understand. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. Actually, just one last thing. Can I say is that uh, it actually shows yeah. the Constitution doesn't answer all the questions, right? That they, uh, it's very American of all of us, as Tocqueville said, to turn to the Constitution and say, "Don't you have an answer for this?" But what you guys are pointing out, I think, and it's up to you guys and up to AEI and all of us is. You know, there's a whole system of practices and traditions and good sense that lay on top of the Constitution that are going to be the real answers. You know, so it's not like the Constitution is going to convict Trump. It's going to be that people are going to shun him and hold him in bad regard. That's the real answer, I think. <laughs> Long sigh. Thanks again, John. You are awesome. Thank you, John. That was great. All right, Danny. So we've just listened to John. He, I think, very dispassionately laid out the arguments for and against, even though he's a, he's against, uh, he thinks it's not constitutional to proceed. You made your living constitution argument in favor. 
and say, well, we have to do something. We, there has to be a solution. My preferred outcome is it's constitutional. How do we get there? So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> well, that certainly helps me want to lay it out. Look, you know, I, I do think that we've reached an impasse that should concern all of us. And I know that in this town, you know, in the Barack Obama school of I won, deal with it, uh, politics, the Democrats don't recognize that the shoe will be on the other foot, but the shoe will be on the other foot eventually. At some point, one of these execrable people who are lurking around inside the Democratic Party, the AOCs, the Rashida Tlaibs, you know, the Elizabeth Warrens, they will end up in a position of power and the Republicans will be looking for tools they can use to prosecute them. And it worries me that we do not have the tools to deal with unfitness for office, because that's really what this is about. I think John sort of made this very persuasive case that the mores that the founders believed would animate our political figures are just inapplicable at this point. You know, a person who can get a job based on pretending to be a Native American is not a person who has shame. And obviously, you know, we poured our disdain, our disgust for Donald Trump out here. The problem is Donald Trump is just the tip of this iceberg. And if we can't figure this out, if we can't figure out what it means to have a leader try to suborn our processes, all that means is it's going to get worse. I love and respect John, and I'm not 100% sure where I stand, but I lean towards it's constitutional. And I do it on the basis of being an old Senate hand where we know that precedent is what governs the Senate, right? And the precedent is that the Senate has voted that you can impeach somebody notwithstanding their resignation before they were impeached. And this is in the case of Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876, where he resigned his office to preempt his impeachment. The House went ahead anyway and impeached him. And the Senate took up uh, the vote. They acquitted him, but they specifically ruled that he could be impeached. And that's even been a more questionable situation than this, because as John pointed out, President Trump was correctly impeached. The, he was still president of the United States when the House carried out its impeachment articles. So you could make an argument that the plain reading of the Constitution is that if the president has been properly impeached, then it's the Senate's job to carry out the impeachment trial. And maybe if this got brought to the Supreme Court, they would rule differently. It would be probably good for our country if we had this whole process play out so that we could learn what the constitutional remedies are and what's good and what isn't. But I lean towards that it is constitutional, but it's not prudent. It's not the right thing to do for the country right now. You know, we've got to move on and deal with other things. And I don't like the idea of empowering Donald Trump with an acquittal, which is what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, but that is also, you know, looking at the outcome and worrying about it, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a I'm political not a lawyer. Question. It's no, a political, not, these I'm are not, political crimes. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I'll say this, you know, again. During the Obama administration, the IRS went after conservative organizations and sought to either deny them their tax status or destroy them using tax regulations. Let's imagine to ourselves that they had been ordered to do that by Barack Obama. 
or that Barack Obama had merely implied to them that they should do that. Where does this end? If we don't have a remedy for malfeasance and abuse of office in the White House, it's not a question for you, Mark, it's, it's a question for everybody. So at the, you know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, we're in a lose-lose situation, right? Because the impeachment proceeding is going forward. He's almost certain to be acquitted. He gets all of the attention that he enjoys by lighting his own hair on fire. And who is the loser here? You know, people will say, oh, it's the Republican Party that's the loser. Hardy, har, 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 don't you feel bad now? And I guess my answer to that is, yeah, but aren't the American people the losers here? Don't you want competition in politics on a level playing field of decent people or moderately decent people? They are. And on top of that, the Democrats have gamed this politically on purpose, right? If it was so dangerous for Donald Trump to spend another 14 days, in, 13 days or whatever it was in office, they could have impeached him the day after the Capitol riots and sent it to the Senate and, tri- and had the trial, as John pointed out. They didn't do that. They didn't do it because Why they not? wanted to jam because they wanted to jam up the Republicans. There were 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment. They didn't involve them in any way in the drafting of the articles or write the articles in a way that would build bipartisan support. And quite frankly, you know what? I'm surprised that Nancy Pelosi hasn't been smart enough to ask Liz Cheney to be an impeachment manager. If you really wanted to make this bipartisan and and it was all about Donald Trump, then why wouldn't you ask Liz Cheney to make the case? I bet you she'd do it. You know, they haven't asked her. They're going to say they've got Eric Swalwell as a as an impeachment manager, which is his political rehabilitation. So they're not serious about it. What they're doing is they're trying to jam up Republicans and make them stand up, either vote against Donald Trump and get primaried, or vote to acquit him and then be complicit in his crimes. And of course, the Republicans have a way around that, which is the very legitimate constitutional argument that this is not a constitutional procedure. And so the vast majority of Republicans will say, I don't defend what happened in the Capitol Many of them might even say, I think Donald Trump bears some responsibility for that, but he's out of office and I'm voting to acquit, not because I agree with what he did, but because I think this proceeding is unconstitutional. And so they don't get to jam him up that way. What a bloody nightmare. That is the right summary. You know, what is going on with the Trump nightmare and how is it continuing into the Biden administration? That should be our title. Anyway. They just can't quit Donald Trump, the Democrats, right? (laughs) Well, and Republicans can't just quit their loyalty to Donald Trump because they can't figure out what his magic was. Blah. The whole thing is blah. Anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Don't hesitate to reach out. Remember, complaints to Mark, compliments to me, and any technical questions to our friend Alexa. And if you agree with Danny that I'm absolutely right all the time, please let her know. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, everyone. Bye. Our producer is Alexa Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.